Good morning and good day, everybody. Welcome into your first long-form episode of Mining Stock Daily for the new year, 2024. Uh, thank you so much for your patience. Hope everybody had a wonderful holiday break. I was excited to get back into studio this week. It was a little bit of a short week, but we have a great conversation with our long friend, Chris Temple of The National Investor. Obviously, all every conversation we have with Chris kind of runs the gamut of topics to discuss, and this one was no different. We talk about lessons and surprises learned from 2023 and what the setup is for 2024 regarding supply, supply, and supply. Supply of debt and everything, supply of metals and, and resources. So lots to cover here in this long episode. Special thank you to Chris for joining us and providing us some of his time. Also want to give a special thank you to our sponsors of Mining Stock Daily. Thank you to Fireweed Metals. Thank you to Arizona Sonoran Copper and to Visa Silver and Victoria Gold Corp for their support of Mining Stock Daily into the new year. All right, here is this conversation, long form kickoff of 2024 with Chris Temple and myself. Enjoy. Have a great weekend. everybody we are kicking off our first long form episode of mining stock daily for the new year 2024 with our good friend chris temple from the national investor it's been a while chris since you've been on the podcast and only if there were a few things to chat about as we enter into the new year how are you well good happy new year buddy glad to be yeah. back yeah happy new year to you as well it was a big year for you i mean you got married. Congratulations. And, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, I get your newsletter. There's been a lot of activity in the portfolios, uh, a lot of things to, you know, uncertainty, but also you have had some winners here. And it's, you know, it's just an overall 2023 is pretty good for you. It's, it was to a certain extent, you know, the, the, the problem that anybody in our industry experiences from time to time, Trevor, is that you're only as good as your last call. Or the other thing is, I've got a plaque on my wall, you can't see it here, but it says when I'm right, nobody remembers, but when I'm wrong, nobody forgets. So in 2020, (laughs) if if you take the last two years of my overall portfolio performance, we're, we're about even, give or take one or two percent, which is better than a lot of people. Frankly, most people have done. It's better than everybody did that's only in resource stocks and everybody's still licking their wounds and wondering if, you know, if gold's going to have to go to 10000 and copper to $10 a pound to break even with right. losses of the last few years, et cetera. So I guess in relative terms, we've done pretty good. It, it's It's been challenging, though. A lot of things happened in 2023 that you wouldn't have thought would a lot of things didn't happen that still may you know uh, i i am one of course as you know getting my stuff who believes that the great stagflation as i've called it is here to stay we've seen the best news we're going to see on i think both interest rates and inflation coming down and the only question in my mind is do they go much higher again in 2024 uh, that's going to depend on a few things. But never a dull moment, Trevor. We've got a lot of crazy things going on in the world, in the markets. Uh, what I think is going on right now, too, is that, and it's too early to buy with both hands, 
but a lot of really good stories among small cap stocks everywhere, not just resources, are, it, I mean, literally generational buying opportunities. Wonderful. Uh, you would have said that a year or two ago. Now it's even more so. Yeah. Um, and I think that the environment I see ahead of us is going to force people to be investors again. The Magnificent Seven have already had a couple of bad stumbles in the first few days of the new year. You, you, you look at the big Apple downgrade, uh, anchoring that. So I, I think that a lot of the stuff that's overpriced is going to flutter back down, not crash necessarily. And the stuff that's really cheap is going to start getting some love. Yeah. Well, let's talk about something that we a lot of people expected to happen that didn't happen in 2023, and that is a recession. There was a lot of speculation going into 2023 that, oh, yes, first quarter, second quarter, late in the fall, we will the U.S. will hit a recession. Uh, you know, our, this economy in the United States has been fairly strong. I mean, obviously, lots of cracks in the system, and we don't need to go with you know a fine-tooth comb talking about those cracks because uh, we, we've talked about them all year, to be quite frankly, to be quite frank. Uh, but the recession never happened. Um, and so here we are, 2024, with the same speculation. Oh, crash and, or, you know, recession, late first quarter, early second quarter. I mean, let's talk about this. How resilient from a recession was this economy in 2023? And can it maintain that resiliency into the new year? Well, first off, I think what a lot of us underestimated was the extent to which you, you look at how much money was printed by the Fed, really starting several months before COVID gave them the excuse to really open the floodgates. Um, but something like 30% of all of the U.S. dollars ever created in the entire history of the U.S. of A. were created in about two years. So you had this massive, unprecedented uh, oceans of liquidity that were out there. And the Fed, you know, even though they added all this liquidity with buckets and fire hoses, they've been taking it out in relative terms so far with, you know, little drinking cups. So I wrote a commentary before the holidays. It's been out there a little bit for a while. Anybody that wants it that's not on my mailing list, get on my mailing list. I'll send it to you for free. I said, if you want to understand how the markets are going to behave in 2024, you only need to know three words, supply, supply, and supply. And to some extent where it comes to the Fed and the money supply, I looked backwards and I said, there was such a supply of new credit and money and liquidity in the markets. You've got record high money market fund balances. Uh, the consumer is not nearly in as bad a shape relatively speaking, is before the housing market busted and right after it did 15 years ago. So it, in retrospect, that supply of credit and liquidity has simply not been hit hard enough yet to cause a widespread recession. Now, that said, if you look at several states right now and you look at the Federal Reserve reports uh, in those regions where those states are, Almost all of the job growth has been public sector, via deficit spending, health care, and that type of thing. Services I do as believe, well. Services yeah, as well. I do believe there is somewhat already, Trevor, of a tale of two cities where if you've got a good paying job, if you've got some savings, you're, you're not over your skis with debt, 
you know, it's still pretty good. I mean, you know me. I live in St. Augustine, Florida, a great destination for people from all over the planet, literally for Christmas time. You can't get up and down the streets during the Christmas season with a sh- you know shoehorn uh, to help you along. I mean, it's just nuts. The building going on around here, the high, higher mortgage rates or not, is nuts. So in a lot of areas where demographics and, and incomes and whatnot can support it, people are doing well. But there's also a lot of people who aren't doing well. Look at the recent news from FedEx. Look at the comments recently from CEOs of Target and, and Walmart, just to name those two. They're talking about people even starting to cut back on the kind of groceries they're buying. So you've got still this big segment of the population that I think has been feeling a recession now for at least the last year. It's just not in the official numbers yet. And and the question in my mind is how quickly does this broaden out in 2024 to start bringing in a larger percentage of the population? Because I believe it will. I don't think we're going to have a major bust necessarily. There's still a lot of liquidity out there. But when the reality sets in that that slow, dull ache of the great stagflation is here and it's here to stay, I think that's, even for people that still have some financial ability, that's going to start to change behaviors a bit more than we've already seen, too. People will start sitting on their hands a little bit. Well, let me ask you, not that I want to go, as I said, I want to go through all these details and fine-tooth comb about the cracks, but one of the, the great pieces of data that I saw last year, and it was late into the year, was the amount of credit card delinquencies removing the top big banks those institutions out of that out of that data set with the the rest of the banks and the rest of the the credit card debt it was skyrocketing we also yeah. know that uh, uh, car loans delinquencies started to really rise quickly uh, so there are cracks in the system and it's one of those things where we are we're starting to see unfortunately uh, the middle to lower classes get hit hardest first right and but that shows oh, yeah. you that the amount of money that they printed for the last two or three years and the way it never trickles down like they say it's going to, it never absolutely does. It stays to the middle to upper class because that's what they, because those people know what to do with it to make more of it. I think that's a fair right. thing to say. It's that's not a false, false accusation. Um, but we're starting to see it now. What happens in 2024 here? to really kind of start moving that into the middle to upper class? Again, I think behavior is going to change as much as the dollars and cents, which will lead to the dollars and cents equation changing. The problem you have right now, Trevor, as I see it chiefly, is that there's this mindset, and we saw it after the December FOMC meeting where Jerome Powell probably went farther than he should in suggesting that the Fed was done raising interest rates and may lower them sooner. His tone, his tone changed substantially. Now, several others walked it back. John Williams, two days later, on a Friday morning, you know, the New York Fed chief, he tried to walk it back. But everybody got in their head that now, if you look at the Fed funds futures markets, uh, the Fed's going to raise or lower rates by six times, 625 yeah. basis point cuts in 2024, which ain't going to happen unless we have an implosion in some place. Uh, and the Fed has made very clear that they are going to keep interest rates elevated for quite a while to make sure inflation is back in the toothpaste tube. I, I don't Look, in the end, I don't think they're going to succeed, but they're going to try and stick with it as long as they can. But you have in the markets 
and among people with money, the, the middle upper class, the upper class, the, certainly Wall Street, uh, almost uniformly, that, that so, still has it in their head that we're going to have this binary outcome. The only thing that can happen now that the Fed is done raising interest rates is they're going to cut them back to zero. We're going to have ZERP again. The Fed's going to be your friend and go out and you know that you got this magic tailwind. And those days are over. And there simply is not the understanding of that yet in the markets and among, I think, the majority of the country, certainly among the majority of the country that have the money. So as 2024 unfolds, we see that inflation is still sticky. We see that interest rates really can't come down. You know, one of the elements of that whole supply, supply, supply thing that I wrote is that for the first time in 40 years plus, Part of the equation, and a key part of the equation now with the pricing of treasury debt, is actually supply. Because there's so darn much of that treasury debt that the market can't take all of it up and keep all the rest of us in, you know, kind of fat city as well. So that's something that is not understood, that interest rates almost can't come down. You know, I think a key part of the equation in 2024, and I talk about this, you know, in my supply, supply, supply thing as well, is that there is such a gargantuan volume of treasury debt that needs to be issued, that needs to be rolled over, that that's going to crowd out a lot of the private sector at a time that the Fed is still ostensibly trying to withdraw some of this liquidity. So it's going to keep the level of interest rates higher. And again, this is the first time in 40 plus years that that has been a big part of the equation. So uh, I think where we're going to end up, Trevor, for time's sake, and I've said this a few times recently in other, uh, other platforms, I believe that by the time 2024 is over, while they will not come out overtly and say, that we, look, we did our best, but some of these things are out of our hands. We're abandoning our 2% inflation target. Okay? Wouldn't that be something? The Fed will not The Fed will not say that overtly, I don't believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Powell would rather have one tooth pulled out of his head at a time than to say that overtly. But implicitly, that's where they're going to be because we're going to see the economies slow down, broaden, not again, not necessarily a crash unless some something out of left field the markets triggers it. But we're going to see the economy slow down, broaden. We're going to see uh, corporate earnings come in less robust than a lot of people are pricing in. Uh, but inflation is going to stay sticky, and that's based on what's in front of us right now. What if oil, which has no business being seventy-five dollars a barrel and should be ninety or a hundred, gets back up there? Right. Okay. What if what if other heating prices, you know, natural gas got dirt cheap again? I don't believe that's going to last for a variety of reasons. I've got a report coming out on old energy imminently. Um, so I think that if we're still at, you know, 4%, give or take, just chronic run rate of inflation, the Fed has no room to lower interest rates much at all, but they're going to be forced to do it if something really bad happens in the economy, even without inflation coming down. And that is where, and a lot of us already know that this is coming. It has to as a matter of simple mathematics, in my opinion. Okay, mm-hmm. But when that becomes evident, when the Fed does something that underscores that, you know, they cut interest rates even though the CPI and PPI are staying higher or went up a little bit last month, then we're going to know, okay, the jig is up. 
The only thing they got left is continue inflating everything because that's how you pay off debt and or service debt in the long run is with lots and lots and lots more of it and with inflation. Um, and that's the point at which the gold bugs out there could really start salivating and and you'll have a bona fide next major move higher for, for gold. Yeah. There was a lot of concern, rec- uh, not just recently, but all through 2023, about the supply of treasuries uh, coming uh, into the market. But there was also a lot of questions of who's buying those treasuries. And uh, Chris, from your desk, were you getting any clarification of who were the big buyers of this new supply of treasuries in the, this past year? The big buyers have frankly been within our own four walls. You know, it's a misnomer and it comes from the usual suspects out there, those carnival barker types among the gold bug gurus and whatnot who've got all these dopey stories about the you know china's dumping treasuries so you got to do this and china and japan both these days are very minor players believe it or not in the treasury market for what they have been net selling in the recent past and they have been net sellers in the recent past of treasury paper that has been made up for on the part of pension funds investment advisors and whatnot to whom these days you know four percent on a 10-year treasury uh, uh, or or even uh, you know parking your money for uh, in treasury bills at closer to five uh, that's not a bad move so it's not come to a crisis yet for the treasury as far as who they're going to sell this paper to Keep in mind as well that despite the talk of the ongoing quantitative tightening and the Fed rolling some of the this paper off of its official balance statement, look at some of the other statistics recently, whether it's the bank term funding facility, whether it's the repo markets or whatnot, there's still a lot of backdoor backing and filling being done by the Fed through its open market operations. So I don't think you're at a place yet where you're going to have a buyer strike, you know, this isn't this isn't uh, 1987 even, mm. where it was Japan single-handedly that was buying a lion's share of treasuries in those days, because they had such massive current account surpluses, uh, and they boycotted treasury auctions until the the interest rates went higher. That caused interest rates to go soar, and that's the biggest financial factor that knocked the legs out from under the stock market in October of '87. So we're not there today. Um, But here's the problem, that the people now who have been buying, and again, it's within our own four walls primarily, uh, and it is some other net foreign buying who's seen the relative strength of the dollar until recently, but still better than most. You know, it's what we always say about the dollar and treasury paper. It's the cleanest shirt in a dirty laundry pile or the best looking horse in a soap factory, whatever you want to say. Um, They think that inflation is going back to 2%, like the Fed says. So why wouldn't you buy a 10-year treasury at 4%? But when over the next few quarters, they realize it's not going back down. Then the buying interest, even from the people who've been buying it recently, the money managers, the asset managers that, you know, think the 60-40 portfolio is okay again, they're going to get a little bit skittish about buying treasury paper again. Uh, and then the Fed's going to have a problem. The treasury's going to have a problem. Uh, and that's why I believe that the you know the, the yields are going to stay up. I listened to a great conversation, Trevor, at the New Orleans Investment Conference back in early November. And Jim Urio and Peter Bookfar, two of the smarter guys out great there guys. on this stuff, great guys. we're talking about exactly this point. And that don't be shocked if in two years... 
there's a recession. The Fed has cut short-term interest rates back down to 2 or 3%, but you're going to be paying 6% for longer-term treasuries mm. because that's what the supply dynamic is going to do to the market. They're simply not going to be able to command the kind of money at the long end of the market when it by that time will become evident to everybody what I said a few minutes ago, and that is the Fed. However they try and sell this, uh, they're going to run up the white flag and say we can't fight inflation anymore. Mm-hmm. We got two choices: either everything implodes, or we print more money and let the chips fall where they may. They will take that second choice. Yeah. It's just a few people have caught on to that inevitability yet. Yeah. Uh, they typically, for the last forty years, that's what they've always done. Uh, you mentioned Peter Bookvar here, Chris, and uh, this great reminder. Uh, in one of his notes earlier this week, he reminded me and the rest of his readers. Uh, there's $500 billion, half a trillion commercial real estate debt that comes due this year. There's another half trillion due in 2025. Uh, so there is a lot of commercial real estate debt that's going to, something is going to have to happen. Uh, it's not going to be favorable <laughs> to, to the debtors, no. obviously. But we saw we we saw a regional banking crisis back earlier this spring. I mean, that was you know brushed under the rug as best as possibly can by the Treasury Department and, and, and the rest of the government officials involved, including central banks. I'm sure, you know. But is there? Is, this is probably something that we shouldn't just you know forget going into the new year. Oh heck no! Uh, just before Christmas, I read an article about the top real estate transactions in the United States of America in 2023. And just as the year was ending, a great big office building sold in Los Angeles. I think the number was $130 million. And they said that this number was half of what it had sold for in the last sale several years prior. So because of, in this case, an exodus of people from California... Uh, I guess people don't like feces in the streets and whatnot and the, the socialism that, you, that people can't get out of, of uh, California, I'm sorry, fast enough. Um, you've got that. You've got the overpriced nature of a lot of this West Coast real estate to begin with. The the you know I think the trend that's here to stay of more and more people working from home and a lot of big markets all around the country and in Canada, both. You, you can't give away some of these office complexes anymore. So the problem is, yeah, you can sell them for what the market will bear right now, but the, the, the people holding the paper and the mortgages on these things, they're going to be in trouble. Now, we've seen a trial run for, I think, what is going to come in the U.S. in, in the form of what has been going on in China now for the last few years, where with the biggest real estate concern on the planet, Evergrande, they have had what the Chinese government itself has called a marketized default. Get your head around that term because you're going to start hearing it other places, including in the U.S. in the few years just ahead. Uh, Once upon a time, uh, for example, in 2008 and 2009 and 2010, the Fed could bail everybody out. That's neither mathematically nor politically tenable any longer because of a lot of dynamics in society with the markets and so forth. So for the first time in a very, very long time, you are going to see a lot of defaults occur with these things like this this uh, overextended commercial real estate. A lot of people are going to take haircuts. It's going to hit a lot of people's bottom lines that have invested in these things. That is going to reduce animal spirits a lot. And it's going to feed 
this whole great stagflation environment going forward. You know, the one good part of all of this, Trevor, that I think going forward, and I, I forget who it was that I heard, uh, oh, it was Stan Druckenmiller that, that commented on this back in the fall and talking about where we're going with this chronically higher level of inflation and interest rates. And anybody wants to comp contemplate how that is going to force everybody to take their behavior back to the real world. Mm -hmm. And not to just throw money at anything thinking the Fed's got your back, but am I going to get my money back? Is this a viable business? Are there legitimate earnings and dividends here? Is there a legitimate chance to be paid back, etc.? And the good thing about all of this is that money henceforward, you know, going forward, increasingly is going to go where it deserves to go. Where you've got legitimate value, where you you've got pricing power on a part of whatever you're putting money in where you've got an ability to repay debts, whether you're talking about a consumer with a good enough job, a business with a good enough profile, whatever. So this this age, even though we're going to need more and more liquidity going forward to keep everybody afloat, a lot of that's going to be eaten up by debt service. Mm -hmm. So to get any new credit out there and to get new investment out there for the first time in a long time, guess what? you got to have good fundamentals. Yeah, a rejuvenation of the value investor, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Well, let me. That let, started. In, yeah, that started a couple of times, or tried to start yeah, a couple of times did. lately, and I think it's gonna it's gonna restart again big time this year. Yeah, I think you and I talked about that in like early 2022, yeah. actually. <laughs> so, but let me yeah. let me push back on this, just you know, just for the sake of it, Chris. Uh, and I, I okay. tend to agree with you. Where I don't agree with you is I don't think that happens in the next two years. Just because of the political cycle, we are in an election year uh, right now. If if you want to say it's the two candidates, if it's Biden versus Trump in November, which by all account that seems where we're going, and we can talk about that, you know, later. But if that is the case, I do not see a situation where either of those individuals would allow what you just described to happen because their political career. <laughs> Uh, would uh, take a, a hard curveball. Where they would allow what to happen? They were they would allow institutions to default, to allow the, to kill the animal spirits. Well, well, look, I mean, of course, right now in that sense, the the monk is on Biden's back. But you know me, I'm an equal opportunity pisser offer, and you know we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place had the Orange Wonder kept a few of his promises and didn't lay the foundation for Biden to have potential World War III's starting on three different fronts and all the deficit spending that he's doing right now. So uh, I, I'm, I'm not uh, you know, rolling over in the aisles for either one of them, quite honestly. But here's the problem. Um, and, and I addressed this in one of my recent newsletters. You know, there's a view, and I think it was Kevin Hassett, who was uh, Trump's economic and, uh, NEC director for a while, was suggesting recently that Biden's going to try and, quote, goose the economy or the Fed is going to try and goose the economy for him. Mm -hmm. The Fed has got bigger problems than who the next president is. Now, there have been some comments out from, you know, past Fed heads and past Fed regional bank presidents that have been pretty partisan. You know, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, it'd be nice if, if the Fed can, you know, engineer the soft landing so that there's not a bigger reason that Biden's going to lose or Trump's going to get back in. But that's not the biggest of, of the Fed's problems right now. You know, the, Jerome Powell's biggest problem right now, is he, is he going to go into history as the biggest bungler 
even worse than Arthur Burns? Uh, or is he going to uh, somehow figure out a way to do what is mathematically unlikely and that is engineered a soft landing? I mean, and it's not all a problem of his doing. But as time has gone on, what you have in the first place when you have a fractional reserve monetary system is that levels of debt go up exponentially and it takes ever more debt just for everybody to service what's out there. Forget about ever paying anything off. Mm -hmm. And so the Fed's got to manage that where it comes to the economy. They've got to keep markets afloat and so forth. It's going to become increasingly difficult to do that. The biggest political imperative, though, for them continues to be that they have been, at least by you know some of their public statements, uh, cognizant of the fact that they made a mistake in letting inflation get as entrenched as it has become in the last year, year and a half, and they've got to do something about that. And if that cost Biden his job, so be it. You know, you can go back for the, this entire modern age of the Fed, which I take back really to Paul Volcker. And there have been as many times as a Fed supported uh, uh, an incumbent president or party, and just as many times as they undermined. You know, George Bush Sr. famously carped about the Fed costing him the election in 92, mm -hmm. for example. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know that that you can simplify it and say, well, Biden's going to try and keep everything afloat. I mean, there's, you know, the deficit spending is off the charts. We all know that. Yep. And that has given everybody a false sense of security. Maybe inertia can, you know, maybe the momentum keeps it going into election day and, and improves uh, Biden's chances or anybody that might replace him. But I don't know. I, I'm not looking at the politics as much as I am just the math, really. Was that announcement from the Fed meeting back in December a way to maybe paint a facade of a soft landing? I don't know if it was that or not. I, you know, I, I, I mused at the time in a commentary I wrote right after Trevor, like, what what is it that that, that Powell knows that the rest of us right, didn't know? Because right. it was less than a month before that Fed meeting that he was repeating the same thing he had been saying for well over a year. We're going to need to have an extended period of below-trend growth. Be sure as hell haven't had that, at least if you take the numbers at face value for GDP. We've got to have an extended period of time of you know weaker employment. We really haven't had a whole lot of that yet either, you know, to be sure that these inflationary pressures, which now have turned into labor-driven cost-push inflation like the 70s, mm -hmm. okay, that's there. Uh, you know, for the longest time, Powell told us inflation overall was transitory. That turned out not to be the case. He continues to insist there's not a, a labor-driven wage push or cost push inflation. Yes, there is. Look at look at all of these wage concessions from the you know the automaker unions. Uh, uh, what UPS had to agree to uh, minimum wages going up everywhere. You've got all of that. It's all baked into the cake. So. Why in December he went away, at least rhetorically, from all of that? I don't know. I mean, I my cartoonist, if you if you saw it, did a cartoon showing he was like uh, Alistair Sims Scrooge character, you know, on Christmas morning, dancing around, so happy and everything. Um, and I, I I don't know anything, and now I don't know that I know anything, or however that went. Um, you know, and again, some of the Fed officials since then tried to walk it back. The minutes that came out this week on Wednesday of the past meeting also threw some cold water on that. Because I do believe that the Fed is going to be very slow, very slow, to lower interest rates. They're not going to raise them anymore, I don't believe. 
But as far as lowering them, I think it's at least mid-year, maybe longer, if inflation picks back up because of oil picking back up. Uh, you know, so we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. Um, but, it, it was, um, it's, and I also think, sorry, it was, it was just really interesting, you know, because I, I actually, I, I try not to like dive into and listen to every word of, uh, right. of those press conferences, but in December I, I did because I, I got, you know, we got the news 30 minutes before the presser. And so I heard the news like, oh man, this is like, this is kind of wild. And so I, you know, I, I did listen to as much of Jerome Powell's presser as I could that afternoon. And when it was all done, I was just, you know, I'm watching these markets and I'm like, everything's going to rally, you know, and everything did rally gold rallied the S and P all the NASDAQ, you know, they obviously arguably double topped close to eventually recently. But at the end of that day, I was just like, is that it? Like, it doesn't sound like we ate any shit at all. No, it doesn't feel like, you know, and for a year and a half, he was like, it's going to be tough. I mean, remember that, that, that standup he had in the standup, but the, when he was at Jackson hole, he said, this is going to be tough and we're just going to have to get through it. You know, he was trying to, you know, the ghost of Paul Volcker that day and right. fast forward a year and a half. And I'm just like, it didn't feel tough at all. No, not if you were investing, uh, you know, in the Magnificent Seven and whatnot. I mean, 2022 was a bad down year for the markets. Uh, last year, everybody pretty much got all of that back, so it was effectively a wash. But that's after 525 basis points of rate hikes. Right. You, know, you wouldn't think it would have been a wash, to your point. Although, again, I think we have this tale of two cities. I think recession has started for big swaths of this country. Uh, and demographically and otherwise, and we'll see how much it broadens this year. But, you know, I, I think that part of this too, Trevor, uh, to finish up Powell's thoughts from December, is that when when you follow the statistics recently of how much paper is being used to back and fill and everything behind the scenes for the banks and everything like that still, I think there are more stresses in the payment system and among a lot of financial houses than is commonly understood. Mm-hmm. Whether we're going to get another early year rash of a few banks tip, tipping over like we did early in 2023, we'll see. Um, but I think part of that is that, you know, Fed speak with some of its rhetoric is going to try and, and keep the glass half full, at least as far as the markets are concerned. Yeah. Because the, the Fed... And they've said this many times in a different contexts, uh, different different interludes through the years. The Fed probably would have tolerated more of a bear market for stocks. They sure didn't panic in 2022. They kept raising interest rates even as the markets went down. Where it becomes a crisis for them is when things seize up. When all of a sudden you've got stocks going no bid, when you've got debt markets no bid, there's just no functioning. It's one thing to see stuff change hands at lower prices as things get priced lower. Usually they should be. But when you can't get transactions done at all, that's when it's panic time for the Fed. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that in their heart of hearts, they know that that's an ever-increasing possibility because, you know, one of the things that the Fed has said numerous times lately, and they're correct, is that we have still not seen 
the full impact of all of this rate hiking to date. And I think that that will come more to bear in 2024. If for no other reason, like you pointed out with commercial real estate, like I mentioned as well, with treasury paper, it's going to be a whole lot more expensive to roll over paper now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I do want to ask you, obviously, we've got to ask about gold. Um, it was an incredible year, actually, for for precious metals. I mean, obviously pretty dang volatile the first half, but once it hit that 1650 level per ounce on the gold price, it really shot up. And obviously, things got a little overdone when it hit 2150 that uh, one Sunday. I think it was a Sunday evening. I can't remember. It was a, Sunday, a Sunday, Sunday night when uh, there were some missiles being lobbed yeah. at ships in the Red Sea. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, well, and one of the things is, you know, I'm looking at this – I'm watching this gold chart here, and obviously it seems like a pretty healthy chart. And fundamentally, I don't know if I've ever seen a better setup for gold, you know, in my short career, uh, as far as where we're at and what the central banks are telling us and what the outlook for economic growth is moving forward. But what I don't see in this gold chart, Chris, and, and maybe you can, uh, you know, disagree with me, is I actually don't necessarily see the geopolitical risks priced into the metal right now. I, we did quickly, you know, that one night, but I yeah. I don't see it. We've got enough, so many things happening in the Middle East right now. I just, I don't see it priced in here. Well, it should be priced in oil and sure. more so, and it's not, you don't see it there either right now. So I, I don't, I don't worry too much about that. I do believe gold would respond as it did briefly that one evening you, you mentioned, if there was something a lot more serious happened geopolitically, but Gold also has been a tale of two cities uh, when it comes to investors. On the one hand, whether it's central banks, whether it's some large investors, mostly non-Western, uh, whether it's uh, investors all over the world that want to put some money away for insurance and physical gold uh, primarily, also maybe silver, uh, they've been buying it with both hands, and that's been the strongest demand side of the market. Uh, investors, though, generally speaking, generalist investors continue to be a wall. Uh, there, there is no compelling reason for you know Joe Sixpack or, or Uncle Fred and Aunt Martha to go out and buy gold when, thanks to the Fed statement in February, the Magnificent Seven apples you know hit this week, notwithstanding, still looks pretty good and pretty secure. Treasuries at four plus percent look good, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I have said repeatedly that further to be the next sustained leg higher for gold. And I alluded to this earlier in our conversation, and I think I believe it's coming, and it's a matter of months, not years. You have to have the same set of circumstances, roughly, that you did in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Because in the wake of that crisis, the gold price tripled in under three years. Uh, gold mining stocks and silver stocks both went nutso, the last really significant move they've had, they haven't had a good one since, really, with a couple of small, you know, mirror images of those days. Um, but you've got to have a situation, if you want to see that happen again, where generalist investors almost have to start to participate in gold. Back then, what did you have? The Fed was not still in this never-never land like they are now. Are they still going to tighten longer? Are they going to start to cut? Or what are they going to do? Unquestionably, the Fed had the accelerator to the floor. We don't have that. We need to see that, number one. Number two, what we also need to see, like we did in 2009 and 2010 and into 2011, is that despite all of that renewed money printing 
it's not going to have any traction for the stock market and the economy, generally speaking, because there's too much debt, they're going to be too badly damaged, and you're just going to be, you know, lollygagging along in other investments. Because gold needs to stand out as an alternative that will respond to the next coming wave of fiscal and monetary stimulus that is not going to help these other areas because they're going to be too laden with debt to move forward that much more. And we don't see that yet either. Because again, after the Fed statement in December, it wasn't just gold that, that had a nice rally. It was it was treasuries. It was it was uh, foreign currencies. It was the magnificent seven and just about everything else on Wall Street. And you've got to break the back of that again. The, the investment community needs to come to grips with the great stagflation and realize that equity prices, generally speaking, talking about them for a minute, need to be reset. I mean, mm-hmm. the forward-looking P.E. for the S&P 500 right now is 20. It should be more like 12 to 15 historically, given the level of interest rates and real interest rates right now. And it will eventually get there. It won't get there all in one fell swoop. But as we see you know, things dial down as far as people's expectations for these other areas, and then we get to the Fed you know, getting forced into being more accommodative, that's when gold takes off sufficiently to take everything with it, this mm-hmm. far, everything meaning all of the equities and things like that. Uh, that that's going to be a pretty. But we're not there yet. Well, what you but that setup to get there, Chris. I mean, that's a pretty stiff back to break. I mean, you're talking about a whole generation of new investors, traders, zero dated option call buyers and put buyers, I guess, on the other side. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a bigger dynamic it's a much different dynamic in this market than what we saw 13 years ago and that oh it is and and, and, i mean you that setup that you just said i mean that is a complete wipeout of generational money that Mm -hmm. was made in the last four years and so that's not i mean that's not something to balk at you're setting a pretty bleak picture bleak picture there But again, I think the pattern will be the same as the markets were in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. The mentality is going to be the same. The stuff that people are comfortable with now, they will become increasingly uncomfortable with. And then they will start to reallocate their portfolios and say, gee, maybe the gold bugs are right and I should get a little bit of this. Uh, Let me ask you about the the junior exploration and development equities. Uh, You know, you have been active. You have called this a really great buying opportunity uh, for a number of, of, of companies that you've had in your portfolio. Uh, but talk about this setup. I mean, it has obviously been an abysmal last couple of years here, Chris. And uh, my junior exploration portfolio, I don't even want to tell you how bad it is uh, as far as the numbers. But, I mean, I, I do yeah. have conviction. I have conviction in, in what I hold. And I've been picking away at these lower valuations, obviously. have. But because of that December meeting in this so-called pivot, whether they don't cut rates it you know later into 2024 are we starting to make the turn now or is this more just like seasonality turn coming out of tax loss season i think we're getting i think we're getting a little bit of both of those things and i'll tell you what else i think trevor and and again i go back to my supply 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 thing the light bulb that's going to start going over off over people's heads increasingly is going to be about the lack of supply of just about every key metal and commodity out there. Mm-hmm. This isn't so much a gold-specific story, but you look, let's look at uranium. 
which bottomed at under $20 a pound a couple of years ago is all, or thereabouts, uh, on the spot price, and now is over 90 And frankly, I'm as bullish on uranium as $90 a pound right now as I was when it was 20 because the supply and demand situation is just as good or better uh, for, for that particular commodity. So where you're going to start getting these new generations of investors interested in resources generally. And again, gold might not be the leader here, it'll be part of the story, is when they start to realize going forward that we have chronic shortages of everything that we need. You know, some of the waking up to this from generalist investors who were never in resources before occurred, I think most notably with lithium Mm -hmm. in the last few years which is on its back foot again. It's been notoriously volatile for several years. I think we're at a a trading bottom again or near one for lithium. I don't think it's as bad a prognosis as the market looks looks like right now. But all of these things, I think, and this this is one of my hobby horses, as you know, the industries themselves need to figure out how to tell their stories, their fundamentally sound stories, their generational buy stories, to these new generations of investors. The problem is one of the reasons that these people haven't been present is that, let's say in in the case of gold, you've got somebody, oh gee, I just read that, I even heard on CNBC that gold made a new high in 2023. Gold stocks might be cheap, but I don't really know anything about it. Let's search it. You go to Google, you type in, and the first thing that comes up is some clown telling you that you got to buy gold next week because otherwise you're going to have Biden bucks. You're going to lose your bank account. I mean, this kind of crap that's out there from some of these, I'd like to strangle them. I like the, the, uh, de- not the de-dollarization or the BRICS, dollar, or the BRICS currency was oh, one that, that reminded me. Oh, I laughed every time. You know, every, everybody, everybody with half a brain on this planet is trying to get out of China. Right, right. So why, why is China going to be the, the anchor of a new currency? It's, it's nuts. 50 years from now, probably. <laughs> Sorry. Anytime soon, not a chance. Sorry to, it, sorry it is, to interrupt. It's that. Silly, and it's silly crap like that that drives people away from resources. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about, you know, you know, maybe something tangible, some good takeaways here, Chris, uh, for people wow. listening in. Um, I'm assuming a lot of people listening are familiar with the uh, the health and breadth of the junior exploration sector right now. Uh, there's a lot of bullishness. A lot of people think it's a really great setup here. Uh, what are we looking at, though? I mean, obviously, you go back to your bread and butter, good projects, good people, cash in the bank. I mean, do you really need to complicate things anymore right now? I don't think so. I, I think one of the things where it comes to um, resources, especially Trevor, is that I don't think you're going to have a rising tide lifts all boats, hmm. uh, even when you start to get some serious moves in the in gold and in copper and stuff like that. Look at uranium. I mentioned that a minute ago. You've had this four four and a half time move in uranium, but the majority of the smaller explorers in that space have done nothing. Right. Now, eventually they might, all right? But here, when, when you start to get more and more of the generalist investors into this, they're not going to be yet. I mean, it may come to that down the road, which will be your sell signal, but it's not yet going to be like it's been, for example, with AI stocks for a while. Right. Anything to do with it, people are throwing money at it, okay? 
when it comes to resources and metals, etc., people are going to be of a mind, show me the money. Do you have something that's generating cash flow? Are you making money? Can I, as a guy sitting in my easy chair, understand this? And it's not going to be, you know, these pie-in-the-sky, greenfield stories. Not that they're bad, all of them. Some are good, some are not. Um, but I, I think that uh, investors that are going to start to come on board here are going to be choosy. So all of us, you know, that are dispensing advice, we need to be choosy as well. I haven't always been. I'm the first to admit that. I mean, I've, I've, I've chased a couple of larks that I regret. Um, you know, it doesn't mean the people are bad or anything. It means that the markets have gotten, have changed a lot more than we even wanted to admit. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, uh, that's I, before we let you go, and we'll probably chat yeah. before November. But listen, I, I, I'm dying to ask you because I do you think in November we have a Biden Trump ballot? Are those are those the two or? I mean, there's a lot of those are the those are the odds. I, I I honestly think that Biden is going to be more vulnerable to being replaced between now and November than Trump. And the reason I say that is that despite all of Trump's baggage, despite the negatives, besides the people who preach democracy trying to to keep people from voting for him if that's what they want to do, um, the bigger problem is that Biden has become hugely unpopular. Um, the whole thing with the border crisis is abysmal, and more and more people know it. You look at the numbers of minority voters who are polled that are moving away from, from the Democrats generally and from Biden specifically. Yeah, so the Democrats have got some soul-searching to do. The Democrat Party, you know, uh, do, do they let Biden stay in and lose, even against Trump? Uh, or do they find some graceful way to get them out of there and find somebody who might be a little bit more uh, electable against Donald Trump? Donald Trump's, you know, Achilles heel, as we all know, is he starts out with a pretty high negatives. You know, there's just a lot of people that have got, you know, whatever reason, good, bad, imagined, real, whatever, uh, that just will not vote for him if he was the last man on the planet and they were dying of thirst and he had a glass of water. Um, but now Trump, now Biden's negatives are considerably greater than even Trump's. And uh, so that's that's your contest. And the extent to which Bobby Kennedy, maybe Joe Manchin, and a couple others are going to tip this equation uh, remains to be seen. That's a dynamic. Um, the potential exists for having a third-party candidate, or maybe more than one, be as pivotal as, you know, in 1980, when uh, Ronald Reagan may not have won and Jimmy Carter may not have lost had it not been for John Anderson, who was a liberal Republican. Mm. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Uh, yeah. I, I would not today, and I follow this stuff as much as anybody, as you know, Trev, I wouldn't today even hazard a guess or try a coin toss to tell you who's going to win. I got utterly no idea. Yeah. Wow. It's wild. Uh, I'm not looking forward. Uh, to the fall, uh, to be yeah. quite honest with you. Uh, but anyways, Chris, I am looking forward to catching up with you once again <laughs> as we progress. More often. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, appreciate your time. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for doing this. And uh, anybody listening, uh, please visit Na the National Investor. The newsletter and everything Chris puts out is not only informative, uh, educational, but also many times entertaining. Uh, Chris, thanks so much. And we will we'll talk to you again throughout the year. Look forward to it. Take care, Trevor.
The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.